Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as insights in how to navigate the capital markets. What you'll hear in these interviews may very well change the course of your career, your company, and your life. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Evan Curtis, the Executive Director of Investments at Vanamore. It's a multifamily real estate investment company. Now, previous to Vanamore, Evan led investor relations functions where he was overseeing over $200 million in assets, as well as raising over $300 million in for real estate acquisitions. In addition to this, he's also worked with a huge real estate firm, PIMCO, where he was developing relationships leading to over $10 billion in capital commitments. So there's a lot of interesting experience in big real estate, but I also really am looking forward to our conversation as you've now moved into a, a much smaller, more nimble firm. And I think that the conversation we'll have will be really insightful. So Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Corey. Really excited to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Yes. So let's start off with a bit of an introduction about yourself. I provided some highlights to the career, but I think there's a lot more. So tell us about yourself, please. Yeah. Like you mentioned, I spent about 12 years at PIMCO starting my career, really kind of cut my teeth there across a couple of different functions within the firm. You know, I started in 2005, so had the the fortune and pain of living through the the very late stages of kind of the run up prior to the GFC crash with, you know, led by kind of housing components leading to the to the downturn. So it was a fantastic place really to spend over a decade of my career working with extremely talented people, getting to participate in very large fundraising on the real estate and private equity space. Also really, you know, got to see and be a part of a lot of diversification amongst the mandate that we were raising on the private equity real estate side. So you know, spent again 12 years there after leaving PIMCO, went to a smaller shop, residential real estate focused, kind of vertically integrated company that was acquiring value add multifamily, purchased roughly 2,500 doors over a four to five year period there, and also led the investor relations function that you just mentioned. Early in 2023, then transitioned to a company called Vanamore, which was founded in, in 2017 founded by a gentleman named Bobby Larson, who I worked with at PIMCO a long time ago. So you know, had a relationship and connection with him and you know, thought it made sense given the market timing and kind of just personal circumstances that it was the right time to go off to a smaller shop to kind of capitalize on an attractive upcoming market opportunity that we perceive. And you know, that here I am today. I want to talk about the experience and what you're doing with Vanamore, because I think it's an interesting transition from like arguably high finance with you know mega deals down to much more nimble opportunistic you know using technology as some of the stuff that you explained to me so bring me back to your experience at Pimco and the great financial crisis because that was a serious time we went through that was like a major major historical event that we lived through in our careers and all had to take some lessons from that so how was that for you and what are the, some of the things that you were left with after that yeah, you know, it was a wild time thinking back. You know, it was 
I remember when it was happening and there was company wide memos going out on the daily, like, you know, this bank is in trouble. What exposure do we have? You know, be, reach out to clients. At that time, early in the great financial crisis, I was on the account servicing, account management side. So dealing with broad based fixed income portfolios, kind of multi-strategy fixed income portfolios, and had a lot of exposure to various corporate credit names. There was constantly some stress, usually financials related stress. And seeing what was happening on a daily basis, it got to be the norm where there was something that was happening pretty much every day, but that was definitely not the norm historically. So, you know, living through that, I think what it really emphasized is the risk management process and the importance of it. There are financial markets are very interrelated. And when you have one big domino that happens, there's there's so many downstream impacts that are affected. And we really saw that across many industries that ultimately had connections and and impacts from the real estate piece, which was the the crux of the whole thing. And you know, one of the other biggest kind of takeaways and I think best building block for my career was as I transitioned into the private equity real estate focused funds that we were raising, you know, we had a very broad mandate that we were allowed to kind of allocate funds to. So, you know, we were raising multi-billion dollar fund vehicles and had really broad discretion to invest across debt and equity in the public and the private space. So, you know, we could look at REITs on the public equity side. We could look at securities, CMBS, non-agency, RMBS on the, the public debt side. And then also on the equity side, we could look at private equity deals, kind of just equity stake in a single asset, like a commercial asset. And, you know, that understanding kind of relative value and how all those pieces connect, I think has really set up my foundation to be one of a very kind of institutional background that ultimately moved forward to where we are today. Now on this the smaller, more nimble side that Manamore is, is focused on the middle market. I think our team has a similar collective background of institutional experience and there certainly are plenty of other folks with that, but not everyone in the space kind of has the ability to understand capital markets and the impact and kind of all the other effects and understanding how the different pieces work together to kind of put us in a place to ultimately be, you know, I think prudent and diligent with what we're looking to acquire and how we see the market opportunity going forward. Interesting. The institutional background, I think, is a really interesting way to, to learn and provide the experience and the frameworks in which to approach acquisitions and analyze the market. But what is your perspective or what is your definition of relative value and how does that fit to to real estate? I think there's a lot to potentially unpack on that one. So, I mean, relative value, we could be talking about how does corporate credit look versus real estate mortgage credit. PIMCO kind of background makes me think about stuff like that versus more kind of bottoms up right now at Vanamore, relative value, we think about, okay, what do Midwest markets on the equity side look like buying, you know, an apartment building in Indianapolis look like versus buying an apartment building in Houston, for example. So relative value across geographies is a little bit more kind of how we look at it. We still have and, and certainly look at outside kind of of the real estate market for relative value discussions as well. And you know, some of that goes into the groups that we're talking to about ultimately kind of investing side by side with us. There, a lot of them are very sophisticated groups that allocate to more than just real estate. So, kind of having a good good finger on the pulse of relative value in a number of places, I think, just is a good rounding out of someone's kind of knowledge base. 
Okay, we'll get into Vanamore, but I want to just understand a bit about how you are approaching relationship development. And when you're managing, whether it's 200, 300 million, whatever the figures are, or into the billions with the deals you were doing, what were the relationship development process? What was that like? And how would you be communicating? And how would you find new investors? And what are, what are some of the tips and tricks you'd take away from that? You could share about that. Linking it back to kind of Vanamore, what we're doing right now is we have kind of a, a multi-channel approach to our investor outreach and, and the channels of investors we're talking to. So, you know, we're looking for programmatic relationships with family offices, RIAs, you know, institutional type of groups. But we're also working and certainly looking to expand our relationship with just high net worth individuals. Historically, our investor base has been more high net worth individuals and kind of extended friends and family network, really. So it is a definitely a different approach to the two. I think on the friends and family network, as far as tips, it's kind of, you know, your friends and family, they know you and they've known you for a long time. So they kind of understand how you think and how you behave. So I think a good track record and keeping conversations going on kind of what you're working on is is usually the best the best path with that. But on the institutional side, it's a little bit and kind of family net family office and RA side, it's a little bit different. You know, you don't have the same personal relationship with all of them. So a lot of times it takes some type of referral or or connection to get a conversation going because these groups they have tons of cold outreach to them and a lot of times they don't they're not going to pick up the phone. So thinking about your network and who may have a connection to some of those folks, I think is probably the best starting point. And you know, just starting to to put out more information on LinkedIn or X, formerly Twitter, yeah. I guess. Let's just go. I, I still can't wrap my head around that one. Right? I still call it Twitter as well. Yeah. <laughs> but putting information out there has been a solid way that I've seen folks kind of start from the bottom without kind of those prior connections and have some success as well. Interesting. Now, how long when, from the institutional side? When I look at and use an example of venture capital, venture capital firms, they need deal flow to deploy the capital in which they've raised. Those who are in private equity and those who are family offices or institutional investors, and they have a, an allocation of money set aside for real estate, they need deal flow as well. But of course, you need to build a relationship with them and demonstrate track record and continue to communicate. What is the, what's the timeline there? And how long do you see that it takes to develop these relationships and and really build them to a point where it's, you know, a quick call is something that turns into the check you need. Good question. And the sales cycle on programmatic group and kind of the institutional side is, is certainly longer than kind of the individual who potentially invests. Usually, you know, we kind of benchmark it internally. We say a group is going to turn down at least three deals before they even kind of start to consider it. So you go out with a deal and it could be a, a fantastic deal, but if it's the first deal that they've seen, we put a pretty low likelihood that that group will ultimately invest. That said, you can kind of set the stage, hopefully, with diligence prior to that, even if you don't have a deal to actually show by you know having conversations with just kind of updating on what you're seeing in the market, helping them get acclimated to your process, You know, maybe providing them an update on your current portfolio. So ideally, this is not your first deal. Then you're really kind of up against up against some headwinds if it's your first deal and you're going out to other groups. But if you have an existing portfolio, but the pipeline has been slow for market reasons, I think you have a little bit more to talk about and show at least that helps with that. But the sales cycle can be six plus months for some of these groups. Definitely. When I was at PIMCO, you know, some of these sovereign wealth funds and other, other, you know, pension plans, 
that's multiple year sales cycle. It helps that you're at PIMCO. So everyone kind of knows PIMCO and and has the reputation. So that certainly cuts things down. But a lot of times the sales cycle is very long. Okay. Something that I haven't heard before. You've mentioned programmatic a couple of times. What's that? Yeah, you know, programmatic is is something that we and a lot of folks I think will will look for is, you know, you've spent all this time cultivating this relationship with a group. Finally, they say, yes, I'm interested in investing in this deal. You know, you don't want them to be a one-time investor. You want them to then, they've done all, again, the diligence on you and the firm and kind of the target market and the buy box. And you want them to effectively come into every single deal going forward. And sometimes there's, you know, a specific arrangement that's like, yeah, we have 20 million that we're going to allocate. We want to allocate it like this, you know, let's start on deal one and then we'll keep going over the next 12 months. So that's an ideal place, you know, because like we said, it's a difficult and time-consuming sales process for everybody, not just us on the other group's side as well. So we write check writers also would like a programmatic relationship so they don't have to do kind of starting from the bottom diligence on a group every time they're investing in a deal. Interesting. That reminds me of something that we've experienced or I've experienced in previous lifetime in the world of finance. And what I often say is that investor relationship and the diligence, the due diligence process is really a user experience. When you bring somebody, you're going to bring capital into your deal. If you make that as smooth as possible without any hiccups, you're making the the life of the analyst or the, the check writer that much easier. And so now what I'm hearing is from a programmatic side with what you're doing is like, when you can set that up and they look and they go, no, these guys check off, they don't have to worry about future deployment of that capital. It's almost a rubber stamp. Like, yeah, no, we trust these guys. Yeah, I think it's a great way to think about it. And that's exactly in line with kind of what we're talking about. It makes the user experience definitely better and beneficial to everyone involved. Okay. From PIMCO, which was massive real estate organization, now to Vanamore, and you moving into what is, I think, a much more entrepreneurial, tight, nimble team. Talk to me about what you guys are doing there in, the, in multifamily. Maybe give me some quantity or quantify the, the organization for us. It's a very different environment than PIMCO. So I went from PIMCO, big company, big funds, went to my next firm that I was at for five years, kind of smaller, you know, 200 million that we're managing. And now to Vanamore. Vanamore has a portfolio of 100 million. So, you know, we have a track record. We have a current portfolio. Our performance history is great. So, you know, we're not, not, I wasn't starting from scratch when I joined, but it's much different, much more entrepreneurial, you know, with the, the team right now, there's three of us on the team. So to say we're small, I think is an understatement here, but we're looking to grow the portfolio. Again, we're 100 million roughly in size right now. We acquired our first deal in the, in the last 18 months. We closed at the end of December. So it had been a long time kind of as the market was was readjusting to, to pricing, moved by interest rate hikes by the Fed. So it was a long period of deals that were really tough to pencil and just didn't. So, you know, there's an environment that Vanmore is... You know, you're wearing a lot of hats with a small company, which a lot of people can relate to. I'm part of the team that's underwriting deals. I'm developing relationships with the sales brokers in various MSAs that we're focused on. I am aggressively kind of reaching out to potential investors to kind of cultivate relationships to ultimately invest in our deals when we find them. So participating in the asset management and the oversight of the portfolio as we do grow it as well. So, you know, it's a little bit of, of everything, which I think there's definitely pros and cons to that, you know, that people could point to. But I really like it. You know, I've always kind of been an entrepreneurial spirit over the years. I always kind of had something going on on the side, usually in real estate over my time as 
as I've progressed throughout my corporate career. But it was a point in my life I felt that was the right time to make a move to a different structure of a company, as well as the market opportunity. I thought was a, a huge piece that I was I was waiting for. You know, hopefully to be on the right side of where the market was. I want to get into the market opportunity because I think there's some interesting dynamics there that I love to you know get your input on. But coming back to Vanamore and you know a few questions. There, there's a few things that you've mentioned that I want to go deeper on. When you say 100 million, are you talking equity size or is that enterprise value? How do you quantify that in your world? And then another was you said in previously talking about the buy box, which I thought was an interesting term. Can you talk to me about both of those? Sure, sure. The 100 million is kind of the current portfolio value. So the market value, not necessarily equity that's that's invested. That's what that's referring to. The buy box is the way that we define the opportunity set that we're looking to acquire and grow in our portfolio. So for example, I said it before, but we're looking at middle market opportunities. So we define middle market as anywhere between five and 50 million in purchase price. I know that's a pretty wide box, but the middle market is a space that we like. We think it's a little bit less competitive. You don't really compete with the large institutions that have a cheaper cost of capital generally and a lot of dollars that they need to allocate as they've raised billion dollar funds. You also get kind of a little bit of an advantage from the sellers. A lot of times the assets that we're acquiring are not kind of institutionally owned. So there could be more kind of low-hanging fruit as far as the value-add strategy that's available. So a few reasons why we we like the middle market space. That's part of the buy box. We also, a couple other items just quickly. Uh, we like to buy properties that are built in the mid-80s or newer. So there's reasons why a lot of the systems, infrastructure of those properties looks a lot different, you know, something built in the 90s versus something built in the 60s, plumbing and electrical. And we like assets that are cash flowing day one. So we're not looking to buy something that has a very large negative cash flow that you ultimately, you know, take down to the studs, rebuild and capture a very large potential rent premium. It's just a different strategy. That's not generally one that we're looking at right now, I think has less inherent risk, especially in today's environment as well. So our geographic focus is think of an L shape of the U.S. on the West Coast. So Pacific Northwest down to California and across to Texas. We're not covering every market in that space, but that's kind of the big footprint area that we're looking at. Okay, interesting. And being strategically competitive in the sense that larger organizations have the lower cost of capital. And so arguably easier to pencil a deal in to make the economics work. You know, the less you're paying for the money, the more options you have. How would you have a competitive advantage if your cost of capital is more? Yeah, it's a fair question. So the larger institution may have a lower cost of capital, but a lot of times they have a lot more layers of expenses built in to that as well. They do have larger teams that you know can certainly help with processes and things, but you know, there's expenses to the structures of the larger groups as well. We're running things pretty lean and mean. Over here, we don't have a multi-billion dollar portfolio right now. So I think it's very manageable with the team that we have. The technology piece is one that that I like to kind of highlight here that I think is something that is a differentiator and can set apart, especially in the middle market, can set apart groups, which is real estate has never been on the cutting edge of technology. I think everyone will kind of acknowledge that. But there's a few things that we like to employ in properties that can be both a win-win for the the tenant as well as to the bottom line as investors. And 
you know, it's, it's somewhat simple things like, you know, when we acquire a property, we create the ability for tenants to do a virtual walkthrough. So most people like to do as much as they can online right now. And I get it. And we all get it. And, you know, being able to tour a property virtually is definitely a benefit to folks. Being able to do a self-guided tour is another thing. A lot of times people don't want to walk through with somebody else. You know, they can get access to the unit and kind of look at it and walk through it by themselves. So, you know, that's a user improvement from our perspective, but it also helps with kind of the expense side of things. A big piece of the whole puzzle of real estate is there's payroll. It's a big line item in your expense in your balance sheet. So, you know, you ultimately can cut down your payroll expense a bit if you have a lot of people kind of self-serving on things. And so the win-win is that they like to do that and want the ability to do that. And the win on the owner operator side is that you may not have to field as many phone calls. You may not have to meet as many people at the property to do it. You know, we're not in a place where you don't need anyone at all on site, but you know, you can kind of reduce a little bit of that. And it really comes into play on the, in the middle market because like I mentioned, the mom and pop owner who's owned the property for, for 10, 15 years, very unlikely that they do something like that. So it definitely can help you stand out a little bit amongst that group as well. Okay. Yeah. I, I see where you're going with that. And it's the very specific, like in, I have experience in real estate and even to your, to your point, like eighties and newer kind of thing. So you're not dealing with a certain section of just known expenses that are coming down, whether it's replacing piping or electrical or whatever. So building up on that. And then I do like the idea. And I think you got a point there about building a user experience around more self-service and enabling people to bring themselves into their, as a renter, their buying decision as a renter to say, this is where I want to rent and putting their best foot forward to be a good tenant. That's interesting to see yeah, how you can save some money there and ultimately be more nimble and more cost-effective. What are the target deals you're going after multifamily? And take me through the buying process. So I up a deal, let's say it's 25 units in your target market, fits in with your buying box. How do you go about the acquisition? Sure. Once we've like you said, identify that's in the buy box and the geography that we like, you know, we are underwriting these deals. So, you know, we're looking at the trailing revenue and expenses. We are looking at the specific kind of submarket location. You know, what's what's the school district? What does the crime look like? What does the rent comps look like? So you're doing a lot of pieces that go into the underwriting of the deal that ultimately tell you, okay, this is where I think this property can perform with respect to rents. This is where you know, I think the expenses should be and you're looking at, okay, I think I can improve it from where it is now. And, you know, that's the value add story. If I put in, you know, X dollars of improvements, I think this is where we can ultimately bring the property's net operating income or NOI to. And how does that translate into a potential return to investors? So we know kind of where our investors want returns to be. So, you know, that the property, we want something that's well located that we can hold for a five to seven year time frame is how we're underwriting a deal as well. And, you know, once it kind of fits those boxes, then, you know, you, you go through a process of a bidding process is the next step. So, you know, the, the deal will have a call for offers, which is when all the offers are due. And if you're awarded the deal, then there's a further diligence period. So then, you know, if you're awarded the deal, you put it under contract, you then kind of get your contractors out and you say, okay, this is what we want to do, you know, validate that 
our assumptions on the capital expenditure cost is correct. Let's make sure that there's no systems issues with the plumbing and electrical that, you know, we're going to have a big surprise upon closing. So, you know, you're going through a really in-depth diligence process once you're awarded the deal and ultimately, you know, close on the deal 60 days after you've put it under contract and you're lining up the financing. That's another big piece of the whole puzzle as well. So you're working with lenders at the same time. And then, you know, once you acquire, you're on to the asset management side where you're now you're executing the business plan and, and you're working with the local property management companies. So take me deeper into this. You come in and let's say you've got a, a target property, again, back to our 25 unit built in 1995. You have your assumptions on where you can get your value adds in. How soon before actually putting your bid in for the property are you engaging capital relationships to say, hey, here we are? Because I mean, if it's if you go and you get the bid and then you phone somebody up and they're like, well, great, but I'm on vacation for the next two weeks and we're already fully deployed with our capital. So you're going to have to wait another 90 days. So I'm up. How do you make sure you've got powder waiting, if you will? That's really part of the tricky tricky piece of this whole situation. So some of that comes down to the structure that a group uses. So there's two main structures in the space. One is the single asset syndication, where you're buying one specific property, and then you find and get your group of investors that invest in that one specific property with you. The other model is the fund model, where you are raising a fund and then intend to deploy it in kind of a target buy box like we talked about, but you raised that money already. So on the fund model, if you have successfully raised a fund, let's say you have a $100 million fund, you have that money that is effectively there to close the deal versus the single asset syndication model looks a lot different. You know, Every deal is kind of a fire drill because of what you're saying. So it really emphasizes the benefit that a programmatic relationship can bring that we talked about earlier. You know, you, you know folks that are going to be there because that's a big piece of what's happening right now. It's hard to raise equity right now. There's a lot of folks that are kind of, they're just saying their pencils down and kind of waiting to see where things, things shake out. And part of our process is we don't want to pursue a deal that we don't feel pretty confident that we can raise the equity on because you don't want to, you know, have deposits at risk and then you end up, okay, sorry, I don't have the equity. And that's just not good for anybody to happen. So your point is well taken that it's a tricky situation to kind of balance the availability and the willingness of equity with kind of the the opportunities that are out there. Yeah. And so I should ask this earlier, but you're working right now on a basically a syndication model then? We are and have historically. We're looking at the fund model as well. Like my previous companies and we have experience kind of separately with funds. And there's pros and cons to both that if we wanted, we could dive into. But I think in an ideal world, you kind of have both parallel options. Let's talk about both, but I want to bring back, and we should have talked about this earlier, but I want to talk about the market opportunity that's happening. This is an interesting thing. I mean, we can talk about bringing people, investors to deals, whether it be syndication or a fund, but I just find it so interesting that we are right now in a period of market turmoil where everybody is, you know, to your point, pens down. They're like, ah, we're going to wait and see what happens. Like when valuations were at all time highs and people were paying silly money, everybody was all in. And now when the opportunity truly presents itself, everybody's like, "Ah, I'm going to wait and see, which is just, it's always mind boggling to me. What are you seeing with the market right now? And what do you wish others knew? Investor psychology is a, is a funny thing. I mean, you're spot on there. You're spot on. Everyone knows. 
institutional investors. We're not talking retail and you know friends and family and you know high net worths. It's institutions who should know this. Like this is yeah. Anyway, please carry on. I think it's a great point. The herd mentality is is an interesting thing. You know, you couldn't deploy fast enough when cap rates were at three to three and a half. And it's hard for the institutions to not be deploying then if everyone else is as well. So a lot of it is. And then so now what's happened is, is a lot of those groups now that market conditions have changed, you know, there's a lot of struggling assets that were acquired too aggressively. And I was just listening to a clip from my former employer, PIMCO, one of the heads of their real estate real estate operations. And he said that this market environment, we're seeing the biggest dislocation in commercial real estate since the great financial crisis right now, which is a pretty bold and big statement from a group like PIMCO to say. And one of the most interesting parts about it is not a lot of people really realize the dislocation that has happened in commercial real estate. I mean, you see public equity markets at at or near all-time highs and you know, real estate valuations, speak specifically to the multifamily space, real estate valuations are down from peak pricing anywhere between 15 and 40%. I was just looking at a deal and we were just looking at a deal in Houston the other day and it's newer construction as well, built in the 2000s. It's about 40% off of where the peak pricing was. That is a huge move. And it's hard to fathom that valuations are off that much. It also shows you how much valuations ran up as well, that they can be down 40% and people are still like, eh, I don't know if this is, if this makes sense. But I think the move down from here is very underappreciated by a lot of people just because the broader economy is still chugging along pretty well. You know, we've seen inflation come down. We've seen job stability. You know, there's been a little bit of, a, of an increase in unemployment, but nothing large enough to warrant large concerns, I guess. So the broader economy is doing well, but there's this huge divide between what's happening in the real estate market and you know, conversations with folks in, in our space is like the real estate market has been in a recession for the last 18 months. There was just no transaction volume in 2023. It was down to the tune of 70% year over year. And there was just a huge gap between where sellers were willing to sell and buyers were willing to buy. We're starting to see things that we think look like good entry points for long-term investors. This is the way I'm seeing the opportunity. We came out of a time where they're giving money away and everybody was flush. And so you're coming in and you're throwing money. Investors, big and small, are throwing money at deals on cheap capital, on cheap debt. And so that's now caused a, a huge dislocation in the market where we've seen prices come way off and you now have to finance cheaper deals on higher interest rates. And if that's your, your entry point and we go three to five years out and see our interest rates come down even by one or two points and you have that additional, you're able to refinance them, that's your significant upside aside from just a, a regular return of, of capital through, you know, through distributions. So what am I missing there? I don't think you're missing anything. I think that's why we're kind of pounding the table that People should be at least looking at the space right now. Back to one of your original questions on what did I take away from PIMCO? I think it's looking at and appreciating risk reward dynamics within investments. And the risk reward piece has moved drastically on real estate now. When people were giving away money, like you said, and people were acquiring assets that were extremely aggressive as far as their projections for growth and things. And the risk reward was was skewed to the downside there. Whereas now you have what I would consider a much more 
favorable, certainly much more favorable versus where it was. But you have a potential scenario where, like you said, rates could go down and that could ultimately benefit kind of the cash flow side and the cash flow valuation of a property. You know, not to play devil's advocate a little bit on what you could be missing, though, is, is, you know, if we get a broader market kind of economy correction, right now, the dislocation in the real estate market has primarily been driven by capital markets. So it moves in the interest rates. You haven't seen a really meaningful deterioration of property fundamentals. So like vacancy hasn't spiked, for example. If you had, you know, the unemployment rate go to 10%, for example, like that could have a meaningful impact on property fundamentals. So then you could be in an environment where you have both the combination of capital markets issues and kind of fundamentals. But, you know, you would argue that if unemployment went to 10%, the likelihood of them, of the Fed lowering rates comes in. So then you kind of have a little bit of of a balancing out, but it's extremely interesting what's happening right now. Yeah, very much so. This is a larger conversation, but one of the dynamics we're facing in Canada right now is a huge influx of, of migration. And it's been very poorly planned by the, the federal government in, in what's happening, but it's created a huge housing crisis. And so, you know, I understand the economics or the deterioration from a, an economy standpoint, creating unemployment and, and ultimately vacancy is an issue. But I don't know if it's the same way in the States, but there's no shortage of demand for housing, which for us up here, at least, it's another element to a compelling pitch. It is. And Apologies that I'm very US focused and based. Oh, no sweat, man. Yeah. I know you're maybe some of your audience are are wondering about different market, but the same dynamic is happening. You know, you you do have the migration continuing to increase. You've got single family home prices that I know in in Canada is also, you know, an issue as far as affordability. So you've got single family home prices that are just way out of reach for a lot of people. So you have this this huge gap between kind of buying and renting. And that's definitely a piece of the multifamily kind of secular demand story that I like in the space as well. You don't see demand just kind of completely dropping off in any scenario, like office, for example. Nobody expected, I guess, COVID to happen and kind of the dynamics of office to change completely. But the likelihood of something like that, I think, on multifamily for a number of reasons is very, very low. Yeah. Okay. I want to come back to getting into to more of the money raising piece and to your process and underwriting and just even nerd out here with me. So when you're putting together a deal, you get into Excel and I'm sure you have your model, your model set up. How in depth are those models? Are you looking at like a one page, you know, back of the napkin, this deal is going to fly? Or are you going in with huge sensitivities and like, how far down you go? And I ask because I've seen both sides and I even go back to my experience when I first started in um, finance. And, you know, we'd have like 20 tab models that would go down like a thousand rows. And you'd like, what, what is the point of this? Like, it was almost, we're just trying to be quant jocks and just like, you know, show how great we are because we can manipulate the hell out of the spreadsheet. All that said, where do you guys land and how do you approach it from your analysis? Before I answer, though, I appreciate our similar probably background on, you know, at least at one point in our career, starting on these very complex models. And it really gets your Excel game up to where it should be, though. And you can use that throughout your career. So, you know, another as far as folks. It's a good foundation, that's for sure. Yeah, it's a great foundation, great foundation. But I think you start more on the back of the the napkin. 
because you know there's a lot of deals out on the market and you want to underwrite as many as you can to kind of have your again finger on the pulse of where properties are transacting and trading so you start out with something pretty quick that you may be able to just like okay this deal is just way off this pricing just doesn't make any sense at all we're not going to spend a ton of time on it but our model is pretty in-depth it is an excel model you know it's got 10 plus tabs on it i don't think it goes down to the thousands in rows on any of the tabs so I've definitely seen worse, but it has sensitivity analysis. It has a lot of things that you can kind of tweak. And, you know, as you and a lot of people know that once you know a model, you can pretty easily manipulate it to spit out the returns that you potentially want. So part of our process is we like to consider ourselves fairly conservative in the way that we underwrite deals. Also, why we didn't purchase anything for 18 months as well. But you start high, you dive in as things get a little bit more interesting. And our model kind of do it all. Like you could get through the model in 30 minutes once you kind of know it, but then you can spend five additional hours really kind of fine tuning it, doing a rent survey, really looking at the expenses to see what makes sense and, and understanding kind of the capital expenditure budget. So you can get through it quick enough to be effective, but really it's going to take multiple hours to kind of dive into something. If, if you really, really know it. And it's funny I, when I look at models, whether it be for a business or, I mean, hey, listen, anything where we're generating, any asset is a form of business, like real estate, tech fund or tech firm, whatever. I start to see the the financial model almost as the, yeah, this is going to sound bizarre, but it's almost like the nervous system of the company and being able to see, you know, the nerves as they go and hit different touch points and, and being able to understand what happens and they all come in to form your output, your return, your 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 lifeblood, if you will. Totally esoteric there. <laughs> but with some of those nerves, if you will, what are those the, the main value drivers that you look at and are most concerned about? To the conservative nature that I think we exhibit in our underwriting, you want to see not using overly aggressive kind of growth projections going forward. So there's a few main things that you can tweak in a real estate model that will really kind of juice the returns. Like if I think rent growth, rent growth is one of them. Exit cap rate is another one. Like two, those two are big ones. You know, if you have rent growth is going to be five percent per year per year for a five year period, you're going to be able to make a lot of deals pencil using three percent, which is in line with historic kind of inflation rate. That makes more sense. But exit cap rate is again another good one. Like you move exit cap rate down by fifty basis points, that makes a material impact to your to your return profile. Understanding kind of the cash flow component, I think, you know, nerding out a little bit here on the finance side as well with you, but understanding kind of the total return and the impact that the cash flow can have on the total return. You could have a deal, let's say it has a, let's say it's projected to have a 15% IRR, but it has effectively no cash flow until exit at year five. So on a deal like that, you're baking a huge percentage of your success of the hitting the 15% on your exit value. So if you tweak that that exit cap now, that's going to have a really big impact to your deal. A different and kind of the point I was trying to make on the cash flow side, like if you have a 15% IRR, but your your cash flow is expected to be and reasonably expected to be 8% per year for that, the smoothing factor that the cash flow can have on that one dynamic. So if you move your your exit cap 50 basis points on a deal that has an 8% cash flow, the impact's going to be far less because there has been throughout the life of the deal. Like, I just think it's such a faux pas if you ever bring up your model in front of a group of investors. 
and say, oh, no, look, like you're going to lose them for sure. But how do you use the, the modeling and the sophistication you're, you're approaching it with and then now bringing this into to investor conversations that lead to checks? So I've had over my career a lot of time and experience helping and in building investor decks. So, you know, the model is like you said, nobody wants to see the model or understands the model. So you then translate information from the model, both quantitative and qualitative into kind of an investor pitch book. So that's part of the, the fundraising process as well that we talked about. Like once you have a deal that you think is going to be under contract, you're going full speed at creating the investor materials because you have a relatively short fuse on when those folks need to ultimately write the check and be into the deal to close it. So when you're creating the deck and putting all the the return information, the scenario analysis, you know, the information on the capital expenditure plan and the, the neighborhood and all that kind of stuff, you're putting it into, into a digestible format that investors can ideally look at on their own as well as kind of walk with you through it. I've got my things that like just absolute no-goes when it comes to pitch decks, you know, and I truly believe less is more. In some sense, that comes from a, a background of financing and building tech deals where we're just selling the dream and and then going out there to build it. Real estate's a little different, but what are some of the, the, the goes and no-goes when it comes to building your investor deck where you just know that this is it's going to fall flat if you do X? What is that? I think people have a real heightened awareness of some of those major inputs that we just talked about right now. So while 5-7% rent growth in 2021, buying at a 3.5 cap, that would fly to, to some folks. If you show uh, these key assumptions that are too aggressive right now, like that's not going to fly at all, which is ultimately a good thing. You know, people are paying more attention to what they're allocating their their dollars to. So you need to be more realistic with where your projections are with some of the major inputs. You know, that's one. I think the fee structures of deals can be all over the place in this space. So, you know, having having kind of market structure as far as terms of the deal, I think is another one where a lot of people, if you're outside a market like that, that's not going to fly. Hmm, okay. That's a really good point. There's an art and science to finance. And part of the art is kind of knowing kind of the tune you're supposed to be playing in the moment, right? Like if you're out there throwing like huge exit caps and, and uh, you know, five or 7% rent gross uh, year over year kind of thing, you know, if you weren't saying that, nobody's going to pay attention to you. But now if you're saying it, you're going to get laughed out of a room. And so it's that art of, of how do you play that fine enough? Because if you also aren't saying it in today's market, are you still interesting enough? Where is that line versus being too conservative? And so kind of the art of the deal, I suppose. Thank you for humoring me on the, on the finance side. But we're almost an hour in already. And a couple of closing off questions. One is, are there any books or podcasts or other media that you listen to that really inspire you? Something that doesn't have to be business related. Yeah. What lights you up? You know, on the podcast side, there's a podcast called The Fort, Chris Powers. I think that's a great podcast. He's been doing it for a long time. He has a very eclectic group. He's an industrial real estate guy, successful operator, large portfolio based out of Texas. But he interviews lots of different people from VC to a lot of real estate folks. And he's he's a great interviewer and really good content. <laughs> I look at his YouTube videos and he gets like 200 views. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, how does this guy not get more 
But anyways, I think his is a great one. The books that I that I read these days are are not usually finance books. So maybe they're not as, as interesting to folks. So that's all right. Well tell me because and you know what this is more for me because I'm always looking for either new podcasts or new books to read. So I'm always interested. I'm a nerding out here again. I'm a fantasy fantasy fiction kind of okay. connoisseur. So my favorite authors is Brandon Sanderson. So if you're looking for kind of this this epic uh, novel, you know, multiple, multiple series books. Check out Brandon Sanderson. Brandon Sanderson. Stormlight, okay. Ar- Stormlight Archive, to be more precise, I think is a, is a great series of books. Okay, cool. All right. I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Nice one. And The Fort, I'm going to check that out because in a way sounds kind of similar to the work we're doing here. Yeah. Albeit speaking more finance. And then let's end off with just any final thoughts for us and for the audience from our conversation. I'm just going to reiterate what we said. I think a lot of people don't realize how far off valuations are from where they were. I think if you have been interested in allocating to real estate, um, but kind of had been waiting for the right timing, the market to be kind of in your favor, I think now is the time to pay attention. You know, things could get worse. Certainly there's, there's always potential downside, but at a starting point and from a risk return perspective, I think now makes a lot of sense to really to really dive in and be watching the space. Well, hey, I appreciate it. I'm glad we connected here. Really interesting career. And I, I really like what you're doing. And thanks for humoring me with some of the, the, the geek talk. Anytime, Corey. Glad to be on. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.